So we're going through our series uh, called Emboldened, and it's, it's kind of our second mini-series in the book of Acts. We started with Starting Well, and now we've been gone through uh, the first, uh, first sermon in the series of Emboldened, because we see how the Spirit brings boldness in people. And uh, Liam put these you know, names together in splitting up the book of Acts, and it's incredibly dangerous to call a sermon series emboldened. Very dangerous. And uh, I hope that he gets a similar experience at, at some point. But sooner or later, you've got to demonstrate that boldness. Sooner or later, either it's, it's purely theoretical or God wants it to make a difference in your life. So at some point, the boldness has to come out. So I wonder, I wonder where you are on that journey. But we're in the, the book of Acts, we are in chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 11 tonight. But let me give you the context, what has happened just before. Well, we've just had a lame man be healed, a, a man who was lame from birth. He was a beggar at the beautiful gates. Peter and John were walking past, and they sort of gazed at him, and he looked at them expecting to get money, and they said, you know, silver or gold we don't have, but what we do have, we're going to give to you. In the name of Jesus, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And this man who had uh, been lame from birth for more than 40 years got up and started running around and leaping and praising God for the miracle that had happened. And at some point in that transfer of, of Peter speaking those words and putting out his hand and lifting the man up, the faith that he had was transferred, was inspired into the lame man who then began to use for the first time his own legs and his own ankles and to stand up and to walk. And so faith is contagious. Uh, and so we, we come as, as a group of people here to a church service going, anything can happen. We've got faith. God can do anything. Because you know what we see in the book of Acts is not a safe Christianity. It's not a comfortable religion. It's not a sit on your couch and eat potato chips and flick through the channels, go on to Netflix. It's not that kind of deal. This is not a tick off your religious acts for the week and go back to your normal and comfortable life and continue as you always have done. Because some of the things that we're going to come across in the book of Acts are going to inspire some kind of change and are going to inspire some kind of difference. And if we are truthful, if we are honest about coming under this word and coming under what God has revealed about his church and about what it means to be a follower of Christ, then it means at some point we're going to have to start being bold. Our life is going to have to look different to what the people next to us do. And so this is not a safe Christianity space. This is one where we come to encounter the living God. And what's he going to do? Well, the answer, he will do what he will do. And so we have, uh, in starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. So this man, the, the lame man, while he was still clinging on to Peter and John, it, they ran together, all of the people, towards Peter and John at the uh, colonnade, which is called Solomon's, and they were utterly astonished. They were totally astonished at what was going on. And so let me just paint the picture. What, what was this experience like for the group of people who were there? We know that most of them were Jews. And so they had Old Testament knowledge, but they lived in a Roman world. Their world was culturally Greek and it was administratively Roman. And so when it comes to religion, 
they did not have the monopoly, right? Christianity, for all intents and purposes, doesn't really exist as a thing right now. There's been no conscious break from the Jewish faith. So even what we see of the disciples is them feeling like they're expressing the fulfillment of their Judaism, not actually a, a, a Christianity. And so Judaism, and certainly not emerging Christianity, they do not have the monopoly on religion. Other people were familiar with religious acts, with uh, serving and, and sacrificing to gods and to worshipping gods. And the Romans had this idea called big tent polytheism. Right, so that means that polytheism means many gods. So they were happy having multiple gods. And if any of you have done uh, any history, you know that the Roman gods are basically the Greek gods with Roman names. But it means that they don't really care about theology too much. They've got these stories, these myths that sort of say what this god was like and, and what they have done. But they don't really care if there are any contradictions. They don't care if things don't quite line up. And what that means is that when somebody else comes from a different place and they say, oh, well, I've got these gods. These are what these gods do. And this is, you know, the stories that we have. The Romans look at them and they go, oh, okay. Well, I, uh, I guess that kind of sounds like this one. Um, so come on, join us, join us in this big tent of, of polytheism and, and you're welcome. You're fine. But the thing that they didn't like is if you had a God who said, we're not going to follow your ruler. If your religion threatened following the emperor, then that was a problem. And so Judaism is sort of riding that line. So they weren't sort of you know, favorably looked upon uh, by the, the Romans at that time. They were sort of like, well, we need to treat these guys with a bit of caution. But if you were a, a Roman person in that period of time, you knew what it was like to be religious. You had even heard stories of miracles. Now, the thing about these miracles is that they occurred sort of way in the past. We don't see them now. They're far gone, and we've got them in our mythology. And normally, these miracles are kind of a display of raw power. They're an omen, a sign of, of something to come. Either that or they are a god showing their favor to a particular individual. And that individual has to be either a king or a hero. Never happens to somebody insignificant. And usually it's they would strengthen them in a particular battle in order to try and influence. And sometimes the gods are fighting each other, going either way. And so they've got an understanding that supernatural things can happen. They've got an understanding that uh, natural laws can be broken, and that means that there is divine activity going on. And so these people had some degree of context for what it would be like to, for something supernatural to happen, except what they had never seen before was the instance of this. Because firstly, this miracle happened to a nobody, to somebody less than nobody. He was a cripple, had been his whole life, was begging from people. He was at the very bottom of society. Not a king, not a hero. Not worthy of any attention from any kind of God. The second thing that made this miracle totally unique is the guys that just did it were still walking around. They were still trying to make their way up to the temple. They, they are still trying to go in for prayer. They, they are on their way and they see this beggar at the beautiful gate and they're like, okay, well, we're going to stop and you're going to get healed and then we're going to go and keep praying. And then everyone sees it and they're suddenly like, that doesn't fit in you know, my box of, of what can possibly happen. The guys who just did it are still walking away, are still walking up there. And so everybody is kind of like running towards them. And we know from later in the story that there were thousands of people there, thousands of people. So this is a big crowd pressing in around Peter 
and John. They are astonished because not only has it happened to a nobody, but the people who've done it are just there. And thirdly, this is something that is undeniable. This is not like a, oh, yeah, no, I went to the temple of Apollo last week and I offered a sacrifice of grain. And then uh, when I went home, uh, my wife found this, you know, silver uh, denarius underneath the the sofa. And I think it was because, you know, I'd sacrificed with God Apollo. Right? It was like some long bow of, I think this is kind of a divine intervention. No, no, no. This guy in the morning had, had no working legs. His ankles were out of joints. His muscles had not been used ever in his life. And then by later that afternoon, not only is it were his ankles in joint, but his muscles were strong enough for him to be leaping and jumping and praising God. There was something irrefutable and undeniable about that miracle. And so everybody is looking at that and they are just utterly astonished, utterly astonished at what is going on. And so they're running together and causing this absolute scene for Peter and John. And so what does Peter say to them? It says, uh, Peter, seeing them, he answered them. He addressed them. He addressed the people and he said, O fellow Israelites, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you stare at us as though through our own power or piety, we have made this man walk? That, just, just pull back for a second. Okay, because I've just explained why this was such an incredible thing, why this was such a big deal. And then Peter is looking at all of them, thousands of people and saying, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised? Hang on a second, rewind Peter. They've got very good reason to, surpri- to be surprised. But in another sense, no, they don't. Because Peter is addressing a group of people who should know God. A group of people who pride themselves on knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And Peter, if he was to extrapolate on that particular question, why are you surprised? He would be saying, do you not remember the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? Do you not remember the God who parted the Reed Sea for the people of Israel to walk through and then brought it back down to totally wipe out the army of the Egyptians? Do you not remember the God of Elijah who sent fire from heaven to consume not only the sacrifice on the altar, but the whole altar itself? Do you remember the God who filled the widow's jar full of oil continually so that it never ran out? Do you remember the three men who were in the furnace that was so hot, the guards who threw them in perished from the heat and they were unsinged, untouched? Do you know God? Because what Peter is actually saying to them is, you don't know God the way you think you should. Because if, if you really look at those Old Testament stories, those Hebrew scriptures, and you know that they are a, re- a revelation of who God is, you know that they are much more than distant stories, much more than myths in the past. And what's more, you can see what we're doing today, and there should be something going off immediately in your mind saying, that is Jehovah God. There is one God who is able to do something like that, to bring wholeness and restoration to someone who was born with that condition. Israelites, you should know this is God in your midst. What's more than that? You should know that this means the Messiah. And if it wasn't bad enough, when was the last time anyone saw somebody with a condition from birth healed fully? It was a few months prior. Jesus healing the blind man. So what's more, Israel, this miracle that you've seen is proof that God is working among you, that your God is here 
and that the days of his Messiah have come and you are failing to recognize it, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised? And you know what? We might not be people of Israel in a national sense, but we believe in a God. And if you believe in any God, you need to believe in a God that does miracles. Because if he is a God who created the universe and who holds the universe, who sustains the universe by the word of his power, he has to be a God who can break the natural laws because he's the one by whose word they keep doing what they're doing. A natural law by definition is the way God normally does things. And a supernatural occurrence is God deciding in the moment to break the rules. So there is a cognitive disconnection between believing in a God at all and, not, and believing in a God who cannot or does not do those things. And let me tell you that if you've hung around here for more than a week, you've seen God do this. You've seen God come miraculously into people's lives and to restore and to heal and to break the laws of nature. And so it is a cognitive dissonance for you to try and hold that God either is not capable or God could but does not because the proof has been seen. And we'll see later in the passage that Peter calls them out on that as well. He says that you've seen everything that's going on. There's something undeniable about what's going on. And so my first question to you is, do you know God as you ought to? Do you believe in a God who could be here right now in your midst, in this room, who can heal miraculously, who can bring restoration and wholeness to whatever situation you are finding yourself in? Do you believe in that kind of God? Because if you don't, then there's a disconnect, something that needs to be sorted out in your soul and in your belief. And so he says to him, why don't you know God the way that you should? And I, I believe that one of the things that's been happening in our, in our church over the last couple of months is that God is kind of reiterating or rebringing to the surface part of the, the DNA with which this church was started almost four years ago. And that is that we are a church of spirit and of truth, one that seeks to come alive in God's spirit and to keep that uh, anchored in and accountable to the word of God. And sooner or later, that means God's going to start moving by his spirit. Our day-to-day -day practice means that we are in the word, we're coming under the word, we're looking at the word. But at some point when the wind of the Holy Spirit blows, that's going to look like spiritual fruit and spiritual activity. And so I believe that one of the things that's been happening over the last couple of months is God, God's just kind of reminding us, hey, by the way, this is what you're about. Because we want you to live a faithful life, but we also want you to live a fruitful life. We want you to have the fruit that lasts, but we're also going to show you the fruit that builds faith because I'm about building faith. And he wants his people to come with faith because that is ultimately the way that we express our relationship and our trust of God is through that faith. And God's not called us to comfortable Christianity. I'm sorry, God has not called you to comfortable Christianity. There are some people here who need to hear that tonight that if you're here for a, a religious experience on a Sunday and then to, to go home and to live your life the way that you want it and say, you know, I've ticked that box or I've, I've filled refreshed, that's not what God is about. You can cling to your comfortable Christianity, but God is after something bold. God is after his people to be advancing his kingdom because that's what he's been doing from the very beginning. 
And we'll see in this instance people who have learned to walk in power. So Peter's addressed them, and then he says in verse 13, you know, he says, uh, you think that, you know, why are you staring at us as though it's by our own power or our own uh, piety that we've made this man walk? I mean, you should know. There's no one that can do this apart from our God, Jehovah, the God of Israel. And then he goes on to say, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, so that very God whom you should be recognizing in this deed right here, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now notice how quickly Peter is to attribute the purpose of this miracle to the glory of Jesus. And that is something that we should never fail to do. He doesn't let us marvel too long at this incredible work as though there's some, you know, circus for us to be amazed at. He's like, no, you shouldn't be amazed at that because this is all for the glory of Jesus. And it's actually that that you need to turn your attention to. And as we've said, this whole uh, couple of chapters through the book of Acts is about Luke presenting kind of this argument that actually the name of Jesus, who a few months ago was walking around in this very place, Jesus of Nazareth, right now God has glorified him to have the name that is above every other name. And by the way, that designation that he says, the servant, God has Uh, glorified his servant, the servant of God is one of a a string of messianic titles that Peter is about to unroll for these people. The servant of God, you've got the holy and righteous one, uh, you've got uh, the uh, author of life. All of those are further proofs or further statements of Jesus' office as the Holy One of God, as the Messiah, the Christ. And there's also very much the flavor of Messiah through this passage. So he says, God has glorified his servant, Jesus, and then it gets intense. God has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you, you betrayed, you handed over, and you were ashamed, you denied him. You were embarrassed about him before Pilate, in the presence of Pilate, literally before the face of Pilate. Pilate being the one who judged, uh, who, who condemned him to death. Verse 14, and you denied the holy and righteous one. And you asked instead for a man who was a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and of whom we are witnesses. And if you're talking about boldness, I I don't know anyone who's ever done anything this bold. Because Peter is standing up and saying to a crowd of Jews the exact thing that got Jesus killed a couple of months ago. Firstly, there was a miracle and that gets the opposition. Secondly, he starts calling them out about not not believing God the way that they think they, uh, they should. He's opposing them directly. And this is exactly the thing that got Jesus killed a few months ago. Not only that, this crowd is thousands of people large, thousands of people big. What boldness is possessing Peter in this moment to be able to speak that way to them? 
And before we unpack that question, we just need to address the fact that Peter's speaking to the Jews directly here. And you'll notice one of the flavors of this passage, one of the key themes is the word you. In the NIV, I think that it uses it 18 times. It's very much directed at the Jewish people. And Peter is saying very much, you are the ones who killed the Messiah who killed Jesus, the one who was supposed to come as your deliverer, as your savior. You were the ones who put him on the cross. And so we sit here as an audience who are what the Bible calls Gentile. If you didn't know what that word means, it was the Jewish word for a non-Jew. So put a line through all of the population of the world. On one side, you've got Jews. On one side, you've got non-Jews. The non-Jews are called Gentiles. That's us. We're Gentiles. Right, but this is speaking to the Jews. So what are we as a Gentile audience, as a non-Jewish audience? We go, yeah, you Jews who crucified Jesus. Can we do that? No, let's, we need to look a little bit deeper. Right, because Jesus did not go to the cross as some hapless victim. Jesus was in control of those circumstances at every moment. And at any point, he could have called down a legion of angels to completely obliterate the guard that was in front of him. He could have descended from the cross. He could have done absolutely anything to not go through with that. But no, Jesus laid his life down willingly because there was a purpose in the cross. And it's very careful. God is very careful to make sure that in the process of Jesus going to the cross, there is physical and practical culpability for both the Jewish people and for the Gentiles because it was Roman hands that crucified him. And it was a Roman governor a Gentile governor who condemned him to death. And so even in history, we see our ancestor, we see our relative, because the reality is that what kept Jesus on the cross was the sin of the world and was his desire to pay for that and to make a way for us to come and to be forgiven. And as Liam said a couple of weeks ago in a message quoting the book, uh, John Stott's Cross of Christ, you all should read it if you haven't. He said that before you can see the cross as something done for you, you need to see the cross as something done by you. Because every single one of us, and it doesn't take much convincing, <laughs> I don't need to stand up here and, and try and convince you that, that you're a sinner because deep down all of us know that we've got flaws, we've got mistakes, that if there were a God up there somewhere who was absolutely perfect, that in fact we don't come anywhere near that. But the reality that we need to accept is that actually there are consequences for that condition. And the consequences for that condition is that we are eternally separated from God. And God actually needed to make a way to overcome that gap, to bridge that gap, because as a just judge, he couldn't look at our sin and simply let us off the hook. If a judge did that today, they would lose their job. But God had to find a way to both satisfy his justice and his mercy in bringing us to him. And that happened through Jesus' suffering on the cross. And so when you look at the cross and you see that as something done for you, it's because first you've seen it as something done by you. And you know what else happens? When you see it as something done by you, then you see it as the place that you come continuing, continually for the rest of your life. Every time you have a burden, you come and you know what? I know the place of the Savior. I know the place where this has been dealt with once and for all, and I can lay it down at the cross. And the cross comes not just the doorway for you to be able to enter into a relationship with God, but it becomes the means and the power by which your life has been purchased. And every burden that you have, every shame, every guilt, 
Every disease, every struggle can be laid at the foot of the cross and instead you receive the peace of God. If you're someone who has not yet accepted that reality in your life, then can I plead with you tonight to say that you need to do that? Because this thing that we're talking about with Christianity is not some religious club. It's not like the ancient religions where they would go and do what they thought was the right thing and then go home and and sort of think that, hey, this God, you know, wow, I, I, I sort of think that that's the right, I can tie that to that God's behavior. No, because our God is a God who proves himself through supernatural means. Our God is a God who is demonstrating that he is the real deal, that it's much more than just sign up to a philosophy, but it's actually you need to come under the one who created you, the one who knows you and the one who has a destiny and a purpose for your life. And so that is the cross. And, and when, when Peter says that you nailed him there, you killed the author of, the life, author of life, the holy and righteous one, you killed him. We need to see ourselves in that statement too. And it's only through seeing ourselves in that statement that the blessing of the rest of the passage is going to come to you. But there's another thing that we need to see in in this little section here. And that is, it's a very strange choice for Peter to say that you denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied Jesus. And the word there is you were ashamed of him. You disowned him. Why does Peter say you disowned him? Is Peter really coming and, and barking at, these, uh, at this Jewish audience and, and telling them how wretched they are and, and how terribly they've denied the one who is meant to be their representative? The reality is that that word is the same one that Jesus spoke to Peter when he said that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter is speaking to this group not as someone who stands on some holy soapbox and says, you've done the wrong thing, therefore you need to repent. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. You did it in ignorance, but I did it as his friend. In the moment when he needed me the most, you didn't know that he was the author of life. I knew. And in that moment, I disowned him. And so Peter is only calling them to repentance because he himself knows what it is like to repent. And if we are looking for a a cause of Peter's boldness here, why does he speak so boldly? Well, it's twofold. Firstly, it is the Spirit of God enabling his boldness. But secondly, it's Peter's own experience. Because the reality is you cannot call people to repentance if you yourself have not repented. And this is applicable for somebody here who feels like they might be on a ministry pathway going into ministry because you cannot hope to call people to the Savior, to call people to repentance if you don't know what repentance looks like like in your own life. You cannot hope to be leading people in worship if you're not a worshiper in your own life. You cannot hope to minister to people out of needs if you yourself have not gone through that same need and know what it's like to have the Spirit come in and to to solve that problem, to bring His balm to that situation. And I'm like many of you, I spent my teenage years uh, living a double life being at church 
the, the good and, and holy kid able to do all of the right things, say the right words. I knew my Bible really well, loved going to church, spent a lot of time there. But at school, it was a different story. At school, that part of me was, was pushed aside because I wanted to be liked, because I wanted to be popular. And so my language was much more like the language of the people that I hung out with than it was of my God and my Savior. And with that comes addiction. With that comes anytime you give a foothold to sin, then sin is going to take control. And so the real you actually becomes the one that is enslaved to sin and not the one that is alive in Christ until you come to a moment of repentance. And I remember that that moment for me was on a scripture union camp uh, when I was in grade 12 where a man came up to me and he said, God's given me a word for you. And I was like, all right, I'm a Baptist. I don't really believe in that stuff, but go on. And he said, unless you sort out your life with God by the time you turn 25, you're no longer going to call yourself a Christian. Sorry, let me, let me reword that. This is what he said. Unless you sort out your life with God by the end of this year, by the time you're 25, you're no longer going to call yourself a Christian. And I knew instantly, it was like an arrow <laughs> into my heart that that was the Holy Spirit speaking to me saying, repent. You need to make your life dif- different because that's true. That reality is true and I knew it in a, in a moment. And the way that this often works is that sometimes there's kind of like a, a flagship. You know what a flagship is? A flagship is, is one ship out of a, a navy or out of a, a group or a, or a command where the flag is high and where you can see. And that flag represents the rest of the group. So you know what group is there by the flag that you see. And so sometimes there can be a flagship sin in our life. One thing that kind of represents our overall rebellion against God. There may be other little things in the background, but you know there's one thing because it's the same thing that God's finger goes on every single time. And God's saying, this flagship needs to be taken away. And it's only until you repent from that thing that the rest of them also start falling away. We need to learn to live a life of repentance. And Peter is about to call these people to repentance. We haven't got there yet as we're reading. But we need to talk about it now because Peter cannot call these people to repentance without knowing what that looks like in his life. And if you're someone who is serious about ministering to people and serious about becoming useful for God, then you need to commit to the long journey of having him form that in you. All right, because the the power that comes with this boldness cannot be shortcutted. You cannot round about the way that God develops you into the person for that calling. Find me a person in the Old Testament for whom that's not the case. God called uh, Moses. He spent 40 years away from his calling before he went back to free the people of Israel. You know, he was filled with that injustice and, and he killed the Egyptian. And then it wasn't until 40 years later that he was back doing that thing. And God had to spend that time humbling him, turning him into the man that he needed for that job. David was given uh, the prophecy that he would be the king of Israel when he was a young man. And he spent 14 years working that out. Slew Goliath early on. It wasn't until 14 years after he was told that he would be the king that he actually stepped into that kingship. Joseph was given a dream at a young age and didn't have the character to sustain that dream. And it was through many years, more than a decade, and through the lowest of lows. Anybody else been sold by their brothers, thrown into a pit and found themselves in slavery? I didn't think so. 
That's what Joseph had to go through before that vision was realized. The calling of God cannot be shortcut because at the end of that journey, you become the person that God needs you to be in order to step into that calling. And so can I just speak boldly for a moment and say that young person, there is no shortcut to the pathway of God for you. And sometimes it's going to involve suffering. Sometimes it's going to involve going through things that you're like, this is not part of God's plan for my life. But actually by the end of it, you are more the person he needs you to be than you were beforehand. And if you really want to commit yourself to God, it means you're not committing yourself to God for tomorrow. You're committing yourself today for what happens in your life now. And that doesn't change. You don't look five years in the future. You don't look six months in the future and say, I'm committing to that. You say, well, God, I'm committing to you today. Today, I'm going to be the person that you want me to be. And then over however long it takes for God to form you to step into your calling is however long it takes. You see, his boldness came from the Spirit of God and from his own experience. And I believe that God is wanting to call some people here into uh, walking in his power. And I've seen the example of a few people, a few people that you would look at and you say, that's a very godly person. But the stuff that they, that they do, the, the way that their daily life looks like is kind of bizarre. The, 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 the boldness that they have to essentially just go on with their daily life and to see God do things every day, by a moment, by a word, instinctually, just out of who they are. That's a person walking in power. And I believe that Peter in this instance comes up to this lame man and the Spirit of God says to Peter, this man's going to be healed. He gives him the gift of faith and Peter's able to just respond in that moment. And so it's actually, it's Peter and God together. Can I say that without sounding heretical? God's the one who brings the miraculous power, do you understand? But we're the ones who bring the obedience. And that's how God works. That's how God wants to work. He brings the power, we bring the obedience. And so it is God and it is Peter. And in Peter's walking, in his being, simply who he is in partnership with the Holy Spirit, there is a walking in power that comes out. And I know a couple of people like this, and man, it is a joy to see what God does through them, to spend a minute with them, not even necessarily in, in some you know, set-apart setting, just the, the, the wisdom that comes from, from their mouths, just the, the, the ability that they have to speak God into a situation, the faith that they carry constantly is such a pleasure to just spend a moment with those people. And I believe that God is wanting us to be people who walk in power because your calling becomes something that is a combination of you and God. And what that means is that even as you walk, you essentially become your calling. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what job title you've got, what you do to earn a living. It's actually who you are that becomes the calling. And that's where the power is. That's where the power is, do you understand? God is calling you to be someone that is you. Insert name here, plus Holy Spirit. That's your calling. And it's our job to, to seek that and to pursue that. And I believe that, and I, and I know through the, the couple of examples that I'm 
uh, seeing in my mind and through Peter that it's a combination of the boldness of the Spirit and Peter's experience learned in, well, happy times in Disneyland. No, that was not what it was like. It says that Peter went and wept bitterly after he had betrayed Jesus. You see, the power comes from the moments of suffering when God's Spirit enters that suffering and says, this is how I fix this. Can you see? Now go to other people who need the same. Maybe you're going through something at the moment that is too difficult for you to fathom that it's part of God's will for your life and maybe that's what it is in the future. Maybe it's God coming in and saying, you see how I fix this by the power of my spirit? This is no longer going to be an issue for you. Now go and show other people. Walk in that power. It's not comfortable Christianity and this is not a comfortable message. We'll move on, and, and we, we're kind of running out of time, but uh, where are we up to? Verse um, 16. He says, And by faith in his name, this man whom you see and you know has been strengthened. Or well, actually, literally what it's, what it's saying there is that the name, Jesus' name has strengthened him. Jesus' name has strengthened this man whom you see and you, all, you know him, right? They all know who the beggar was. And it is faith which is given through him to this guy, which has made him whole and complete. And that word means uh, not just well, but it means that it meets all expectations. There's no, no more defect. There's nothing wrong anymore. So I reckon this guy is not running around with like twig legs that look like they're going to break at any instant. I think that God has just given him, given him a new pair straight away because the other thing about miracles is that they're a sign of what's to come, of God bringing his uh, future perfection into uh, this space. And sometimes it's partial and sometimes it's full. Right, and so it's the faith which comes through the name of Jesus which has made this man whole in front of all of you. You've seen this. It's right there. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as did your rulers. And so Peter here makes the concession, and I think, I think that Peter is kind of referring to the fact that, you know, you guys did this in ignorance. You've at least got that going for you. But what I did, there was no excuse for. And so Peter says, but God, who proclaimed beforehand through the mouths of all of his prophets that his Christ should die, has fulfilled that in this way. So he's saying that it's actually through your ignorance, it's through the sin of man that God has been able to find the solution, that God has been able to fulfill the promises that he was made, that, that were made through the prophets. What an incredible God we have. He doesn't even need something good to make good. He can take rubbish and turn it into good. Joseph says a similar thing in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so then Peter gets to the moment where he says, repent, therefore, and turn so that, in order that, with the result that your sins become blotted out. And hey, if your sins haven't been blotted out yet, you need to turn to Jesus. Can I just say that boldly? Don't let it go another day. 
And the other result, repent in turn so that your sins may be blotted out and so that the times, the seasons, the moments of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord, from literally the face of the Lord, and that he might send the one who has been appointed for you. He might send the Christ, the Messiah who has been appointed for you, who is Jesus. And let me just talk about those times of refreshing because I believe that Peter is only able to call these people to repentance because he knows the refreshing is coming. Because we've read John 21, where Jesus restores Peter to ministry, where there's a gentleness in his call back and he says that you are forgiven. If you've turned, then forgiveness is full and the forgiveness is free and these times of refreshing may come. And the other thing that Peter is doing is referring to something that should be running in the mind of every Jew right now, and that is Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, which says that the mute man shall speak and the lame shall leap like a deer, and there will be rivers in the desert and a stream through the wilderness. So these people should have seen this man jumping and going, these are the times of the Messiah. There's a lame man literally leaping like a deer. And so Peter here is saying that there's, there's the thing that is required for us to get to those times of refreshing is your own repentance and your own turning towards God. And so those times of refreshing may come. So uh, times of refreshing may come and that he will send to you the one who is the Christ who has been appointed for you, who is Jesus, whom... Uh, It is necessary for heaven to receive until such a time as the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through the mouth of his holy prophets, through his holy ones in the ages of the prophets. And then it continues to to quote Moses. So so Moses said that uh, uh, the Lord God will raise up a prophet for you from your brothers who is like me. Listen to him in everything that he says to you. And it will be that every soul, every every heart, every person who does not listen to that prophet, he will be cut off from his people. Peter wants to make it very clear that there is a Messiah that was appointed for these people. They, should have, they had this expectation that a Messiah was going to come, but it didn't look like they thought it was going to look. And so Peter is saying that actually this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Holy One and the Righteous One. And so what does it mean for a Messiah to be appointed for you? Well, the primary meaning of the word Messiah is king. The, the word literally means anointed one, but that's because the kings were anointed into that place by the priest, right? And so the primary emphasis of this word Messiah is that there is a king. And so when when their king was stood up next to Pilate in a crown, a crown of thorns drenched in blood and with a robe on his back, they denied their king, their Messiah. They chose not to accept the one who had been appointed for them, who had been spoken about right from the beginning. All of the prophets from Samuel and those who came after him have spoken about him and they chose to deny that king. And you see, the reason that we need to repent is in order to accept Jesus as Messiah, which means to accept him as king. And perhaps there are some people here tonight who have not yet accepted or who have not fully accepted Jesus as the king 
of your life. Because it means one thing to accept a, you know, a, a great uh, religious friend, you know, Photoshop Jesus who's giving you a care bear and telling you all about how great your life is going to be. And it's another thing to say that that man who laid his life down for me is king, is Lord of my life, and I'm going to lay down my life for him. Does God, does Jesus have total sovereignty in your life? Are there areas of your life that he's not allowed to touch? Places he's not allowed to go? Because for you to accept the Messiah requires you to give him sovereignty over all of your life. Otherwise, we are denying the holy and righteous one, the author of life. We are denying him. And so the passage finishes off uh, continuing this uh, promise. Uh, So we've gotten up to there to, uh, we're in verse 26. So God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Sorry, I I skipped a bit there. All right, so you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant. That's me. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All right, so notice that the ending of this sermon is that actually, yes, you know, I've kind of treated you harshly, but know that I'm coming from a place of understanding and a place of love. I've been there. Here's the thing. You need to repent. And here's the thing that's going to result from is the times of refreshing because you know what? You are the sons. That's, that's heirs. You're the heirs of the prophet, uh, the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers in saying that in your offspring, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so you see, when, you, when the cross is something done for you and by you, then you also get into this category that you are a part an inheritor of the covenant of God and an inheritor of the blessing that comes as a result of the promise to Abraham. And even here in verse 26, we have Peter starting to recognize that, you know what, God has sent this message to you first. Implication, it's going somewhere else soon. And so everything that we read in this passage is actually directly applied to us because this is the gospel message. And this is what comes to us as a result of being the children of faith, the children of Abraham by faith. And uh, we're going to finish in a moment. And I don't really know how we're sort of going to land here, but I just want to open up a a time of response. And so we'll invite the, the band back up. Because there was a line drawn under Jesus. All of the ignorance that had come before, all of the the stoning and the killing of the prophets that had come before was, I mean, it, it still had consequence. Jesus still had to die. But the moment it got to Jesus, there was a line drawn under him. And the message is that whatever happened before can be fixed by this one thing. What do you say about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus? Is he your Messiah? Is he your King? Is he your Lord? And so we need to make sure that we've responded to that, that we've done business with God and that we've said that, yes, Jesus is King over my life. Perhaps you know that there is a corner, an area of your life that is not given over to him where he is not sovereign. Well, you need to do that tonight. You need to give that over to him. It requires repentance, which means turning. It means changing your orientation, changing where you're facing from sin to facing to God and saying, you know what, God, I don't want to go back there anymore. So if that's you, then I would would invite you to to respond however you feel led. The prayer team is here and they, they would love to pray for you.
But there are perhaps some some other needs that are unspoken that uh, you feel as though God might be wanting to address. Maybe something that I've said or maybe God has been saying to you something completely different in this moment. But if there is something that needs to happen, then would you make your way to the prayer team as as we worship? They would love to be able to to pray with you. So I'll just invite you all to stand and and just to, to close your eyes as we pray. God, we just acknowledge that your presence is here. That you're right next to us, that you're in us. And that you're calling us to a life of walking in power. Of committing to a road that is not safe, certainly by worldly circumstances but one that is safe in you. And I pray that just as you you minister to, to people's hearts here, that your glory would come. And I just think of the the message that we had this morning about the man at the pool of Bethesda. He cried out to God, all of his all of his problems, all of the reasons that God couldn't work in his life, all of the reasons that he couldn't get healed. You know, I, I'm, I can't get into the water by myself and whenever it gets stirred up, someone races in ahead of me. God, I'm not enough to be able to get in and to see what healing might happen, what you might do. There was a whole list a whole catalogue of reasons why God couldn't work. And Jesus, your response to that man was you you didn't even talk about it. You just said, get up, get up, get up and walk. No explanation, no unpacking, just your power and your presence. And so Father, if if there are people here who are needing that explanation, who are needing some some clarity, then would you just meet them in that moment and would you just provide the wind of your spirit for them? That if there are some people who need to be obedient to to Jesus and to get baptised tonight, then I pray that you would give them the courage. I'm just going to be off to the side here, my left, your right. And if that's you, if you need to be baptised tonight to declare that Jesus is your King, and that Jesus is king over every part of you and not just some of you, then I would love to to be there and and to baptise you as well. We can talk through that. Holy Spirit, just come and minister to us. Amen.